I think that what I call Christian atheism is still the ethical stance which fits today's predicament. Okay. Uh, let me begin with a simple observation. Those who follow obscure spiritual cosmological speculations have for sure heard of one of the most popular topics in this domain. You know all these mythical stories that when three planets, usually Earth, Moon, and the Sun, find themselves among, along the same axis, then some big cataclysmic event takes place, the whole order of the universe is momentarily thrown out of joint, and the universe has to find a new balance. You remember that it wasn't taken seriously, but the panic of 2012, where idea is to some Maya, old Maya predictions, precisely because I think Earth, Moon, and Sun were in the same line, it's not good. And I think that politically something like this holds for this year, 2017, which is a triple anniversary. In 2017, we do not celebrate only the centenary of the October Revolution, 1917, but also the 150th anniversary of the first edition of Marxist Capital, 1867, and maybe the most tragic event, the 50th anniversary of the so-called Shanghai Commune, when in the climactic moment of the Chinese Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, it's a wonderful moment, maybe the crucial moment of 20th century communism. Residents of Shanghai, workers and students, decided to take literally Mao's call you know when Mao said, uh, attack the headquarters. We, you don't need neither the party nor the army. People should take over. Well, they took this literally and simply overthrew offices, destroyed of local communist party, ignored the army, and took over. And that was the crucial point, because then Mao had to send the army. And it's an extremely tragic event, because... This was then, people don't know this, the biggest battle of the Cultural Revolution. Forget about, okay, they were tragic, all those scenes, you know, red guardists uh, pulling their beard, uh, terrorizing professors, intellectuals, all that. No, it was the battle for Shanghai when the army turned on the very revolutionaries. And one doesn't know how many the idea is that it goes into tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dead people. But I, I think this event is fascinating, fascinating because it's, I don't like this big question, was Mao sincere or not? At a certain level, he was not. It's clearly that he triggered the Cultural Revolution to regain his full power in the army, sorry, in the state. But it doesn't matter if Mao was manipulating. Things ran out of control. Ordinary workers took it seriously. Let's have directly the rule of the commune. We don't need the party. We don't need the army and so on. And it went too far. So I think these three events 
Mark the three stages of the communist movement. First, Capital by Marx outlined the theoretical foundations of the communist revolution. Then, the October Revolution was the first successful attempt to overthrow bourgeois state and build a new social economic order. And then the Shanghai Commune stands for the most radical attempt to immediately realize the most daring aspect of the communist vision, the abolishment of state power and the imposition of direct people's power organized as a network of local communes. It didn't work, and of course, I will not answer the question today, namely the big question, what went wrong? I think, that's my hypothesis, what went wrong with this cycle, perhaps, the answer is to be sought, and people don't talk about it, but for me at least, as a Christian atheist, it's the key date. Don't you know that today we have another, we have four planets in a line, another mega anniversary. 2017 is the 500 years anniversary of 1517 when Martin Luther put on that door the 95 Thesis, Protestantism. And I still think that the Protestantism is the key, the greatest religious event that you can imagine. Why? Let me begin in a very simplified way, but I'm not totally bluffing, because I presented a version of this text in a theological, at a theological colloquium in Cambridge, and it went well, what can I say? So I'm not totally <laughs> bluffing, I'm not totally bluffing. Let me begin by this triad of orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism. The way I see it, maybe I'm wrong, central to the orthodox tradition is the notion of theosis, of man becoming like God. Or to quote Saint Athanasius of Alexandria, quote, she, Christ, or God, was incarnate so that we might be made God. End of quote. What should otherwise seem absurd that fallen sinful men may become holy as God is holy has been made possible through Jesus Christ who is God incarnate. And then uh, Saint Maximus the Confessor wrote in the same vein, again a quote, a sure warrant, warrant for looking with hope to deification of human nature is provided by the incarnation of God, which makes man God to the same degree as God himself became man. Let us become the image of the one whole God, bearing nothing earthly in ourselves, so that we may consort with God and become gods, receiving from God our existence as gods. End of quote. This orthodox formula, God became man, so that man uh, becomes God, is, I think, what Protestantism radically rejects. The deepest insight of Protestantism, although it's implicit already in the Bible, is that, to put it very simply, God become man and that's it. Nothing more. Everything already happens in the incarnation. What needs to be added is just a shift of perspective. I think that in authentic Christian vision, there is no resurrection to follow. 
Holy Ghost already is resurrection. Resurrection happens in the Christian community. God dies and he remains dead. We are condemned to freedom. Holy community is not, there is, I read here Christianity in a radically atheist way. Holy Ghost is not some kind of a synthesis. God, man, and then they are brought together. No. With crucifixion, precisely that type of God, you know, this primitive idea, up there then is some great old guy with a long beard who takes care of us, so don't worry too much, ultimately we are taken care of. That's what Hegel, my favorite, puts it nicely. He says, what dies on the cross is not an earthly representative of God. It's God himself, that God of beyond. So what remains? We, in our freedom. And that would be the properly Christian trick. Uh, I say God gave us all freedom and so on. He said, but he didn't. God abandoned. He just creates us and let us alone. God abandoned us. I say, but that's another name for freedom. You should just shift the perspective. Or to put it in another way, and I'm here, I'm basing my reading on some very good theologists from my beloved Chesterton onwards. Uh, uh, in other religions, to simplify it very much, you have God, man. We have fallen from God, so the idea is let's climb back through some stupid spiritual exercises, whatever you want. Like, let's become, let's get rid of our sinful nature, let's go back to God. The Christian solution is a totally different one. It is this one. Okay, let's say you, an ordinary believer, find yourself totally abandoned by God. So what's the way out of it? Not, okay, let me do some good works or self-punishment to become clean. No, it's that uh, at that point, when I'm totally abandoned by God, I identify with Christ who finds himself in exactly the same position with the famous uh, 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 father, father, have you forsaken me? So that it's a wonderful insight that uh, uh, you should see in a very Hegelian way how our separation, we overcome our separation from God, not by rejoining God, but by realizing that this separation is separation also of God from himself. That at that point, we are divine. Because, again, the ultimate moment of divinity is that moment of, as Gilbert Keith Chesterton put it, the moment when God himself becomes an atheist. You know, because remember, on the cross, when Christ says, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani, gavadar, he for a brief moment becomes a non-believer, which is a crazy moment. You find this in no other religion. In other religions, you do find men who abandon God. Where do you find God who abandons himself? And again, the Christian solution is not, you suffer, you are low, but don't worry, there are good news. No, there are no good news. Good news are only a different shift of perspective on the bad news. We remain abandoned by God. God will not come to save us. As even conservative theologists who are not stupid knew, like Paul Claudel, my favorite French conservative Catholic, he says, very nicely that the, the ultimate secret of Christianity is not trust God. Things may look bad, but God will help you. No, it's the opposite. God needs our help. 
only we can save God. In other words, uh, the divine, and some theosophic speculation, I will not go into it, we don't have time to lose here, uh, develop this in a wonderful way where they claim that the secret of, reincar of incarnation is not that God did something heroic to redeem us. God, God without incarnation is not fully God. God incarnates himself in man to become fully God. That's the solution of one of my favorite, apart from Hegel, German idealist Schelling, who developed in his Heidegger claim, you know, that these two texts, especially Freiheitsschrift, Schelling's uh, uh, text on the essence of human freedom, and later Weltalter fragments on the ages of the world, he developed this how God produced Logos, gave birth to Logos' son, uh, Schelling literally said this, to save himself of his own, from his own madness. It was, if I may be cynical, a kind of, you know, psychiatrists say, if you are caught in psychosis, you need creative therapy, you know, through work. Well, that's what God did. And uh, some very, if you think I'm bluffing, some very intelligent Protestant theologists came to the same conclusion. Like a Norwegian friend of mine, gave me a reference and he translated some parts to me because it's a not a well-known book, famous only in Norway. The guy's uh, name is Peter Wessel Zapfe, a book on Protestantism God. It's a reading of Book of Job. And you know what's his reading? What does Job discover when he encounters God when he realizes that God is doing very strange things, punishing him for nothing, and so on. Here is a quote from Zapfe. Job finds himself confronted with the world ruler, God, of grotesque primitiveness, a cosmic cave dweller, a braggart and blusterer, almost agreeable in his total ignorance of spiritual culture. What is new for Job is not God's greatness in quantifiable terms. That we knew fully in advance. What is new is God's qualitative baseness. And I think this is masked insight also of the big Protestant topic of predestination. You mean God was simply playing a brutal game with us. He didn't care. God decided in advance you are redeemed you are lost, totally irrespective of what we are doing. And I think this is the right line. I think that as intelligent Protestants saw it, this Catholic way of linking our salvation to our good works introduces immediately an element of handling, of, of financial transaction. I see the child drowning, should I do it or not? Well, I may gain salvation, so fuck it, why not do it, you know? It makes our good deeds part of a, almost, I would say, financial investment into future, no? But as Luther put, put it very intelligently, if there is predestination, then the solution is pure goodness. Because you see a child drowning, sorry for this pathetic example, and you know very well that it will not help your salvation in any way if you 
help the child or not. So it's only goodness that uh, it's only goodness that makes you that uh, that makes you do it. Uh, so uh, uh, sorry, we are here. Yes. So uh, let's go on here. What uh, in this position where the solution is not some kind of a reunification of God with man. We overcome our alienation of God through a simple realization that God is already alienated from himself, self-abandoned. I like to apply here to divinity Hegel's wonderful reading of ancient Greek statues which are impenetrable for us, like what does the Sphinx mean? And you know what's Hegel's formula? The secrets of ancient Greeks, secrets for us, were already secrets for ancient Greeks themselves. And Hegel's theology is precisely this one, that the, the secrets of divinity are secrets for, for also for divinity itself. This is the old mystical topic. Hegel goes there into that line. You find it in Meister Eckhart and all other guys that to bring history into God himself, what happens on our earth, our theological activity, decides the fate of God himself in a way. It's the other way around. It's not that God decides. No, we in our struggles, we fight for the fate of God himself. So how to bring this, and now it comes, maybe it will be a little bit difficult, the proper theological point. I think I improvised a little bit already in my classes about this. I th does this mean that Protestantism simply abolishes our freedom? Everyone who knows Luther, and I don't have the time to go into it, but I have it written, a detailed analysis of the tension between Martin Luther and, of course, Thomas Mincher, the great theologist of the German peasant revolt. Maybe this will surprise you, but I'm almost more on the early Luther's side. He was right, Mincher, in criticizing Luther for his conformism, taking the side of the masters and so on. But Mincher, I think, comes all too close then to this perverse instrumental position which comes close to totalitarianism. Because Luther was right, and this was his greatest theological insight, to insist on divine impenetrability, which written materials way doesn't mean God knows what he is doing, we just cannot penetrate it. It means that quote from Zapfe, God is crazy, doesn't know it. So uh, uh, Luther warned against precisely what we call today fundamentalism. Any position of an agent, historical, who, my God, what is happening here? I'm getting superstitious. <laughs> yes, it was one, at least they are not black cats, and we will survive there. Uh, but it's the Maoist movement, one divides into two, no? Yes, okay, sorry, let's go on. That, uh, that, uh, Luther comes too close to this, seeing his political movement as direct instrument of the divine will. And this is what Luther is right to prohibit. She insists on this radical impenetrability. There is predestination, but we never know what is. 
predestination. Like our lives are decided in advance, but we cannot ever know it. So it's absolutely prohibited to claim I am an instrument of the divine will, like the Stalinist communists in a different way. Historical necessity of progress towards communism runs through me. No, we cannot do it. And I think this is authentic freedom. This idea of my life is predestined, but I don't know what it is. So this terrible struggle to make the right decision. This, because, you know, here common sense doesn't work. Because common sense would tell us, why do you worry? If there is predestination, sit down and masturbate and watch hardcore movies, it doesn't matter. No, the idea is that that's the, this also, that it doesn't work, explains, we all know it, I'm even repeating myself, I think years ago I was already selling this here, I'm sorry, because this also explains this paradox of predestination and freedom, explains the greatest uh, mystery of this old uh, Max Weber's thesis, why is Protestantism, as a religion which is based on predestination, why Protestantism became the religious background, at least originally, of capitalism, which is precisely the most active social system, a system where you are solicited to be active like crazy all the time. Again, wouldn't it be logical to claim if it's predestined, fuck off, I lay down, awaken me when God comes, but leave me alone. No, Weber saw this clearly and Luther, that precisely because you don't know it, knowing that your fate is decided, but not knowing what your fate is, pushes you to incessant activity. And I think that this decision, this difficult decision to discover if there is predestination, fate, necessity, what is that fate? It's much closer to authentic freedom than, I'm using now a metaphor that already used, I'm sorry for my students in my class, than this simple freedom of, I go to a patisserie, they have strawberry cake, chocolate cake, vanilla cake, or which one I will choose, you know, this simple freedom of choice. No, true freedom is this one. And even now you will say, I'm crazy. But let me give you an example to repeat it that already given my class. Think about love, the choice of object in love. It must be free. If not, it's not love, of course, no? But it never happens to you, admit it, as a free choice. If you say, oh, now I will fall in love into that lady or man, it's fake. It is a free decision, but as Schelling would have put it, a transcendental, atemporal free decision, which you experience precisely as its opposite, as your fate. You experience love as, my God, I cannot escape it, I'm caught into it. And that's true freedom. That's the radical freedom. Now you will say, this is sentimental speculation. No, I'll use another example from my class. Isn't it exactly the same with a tough political decision? Not these simple decisions, vote for Macron, vote for Le Pen, which, puff, I don't care. Uh, but let's make a pathetic example. There is war, my country is attacked, and I have to decide, will I risk my life, do it or not? This is a free decision by me. But if you take the difficult decision that you will fight, you don't experience it as a choice. 
You experienced it. I would love not to do it, but it's my duty. I cannot not do it. I have to do it. You know, and I think this provides this wonderful dialectic described, as far as I know, by philosophers uh, only nicely, clearly, only by Hegel, how uh, predestination is much more paradoxical if we read Protestantism in a materialist way than uh, the simple notion there is predestination, everything is decided. No, it means we have a fate, but we retroactively create this fate. Like, I freely decide something, and once I decide it, it retroactively becomes necessary. If I do the right thing, I experienced it, my God. I couldn't do it otherwise. I had to do it. That's freedom. So that's my first point about Protestantism, which means that not only you are free, but you are even more free than you thought. You are even responsible for your fate, for your necessity. And again, as I already uh, explained in my uh, in in my uh, uh, in my uh, classes, uh, uh, here psychoanalysis rejoins Protestantism because in psychoanalysis the obvious result is something like predestination. You know, like, I think I'm a free being, but no. Everything is predetermined through my past traumas, through whatever, you know. So I discovered that I'm not free. And this was the fashionable lesson half a century ago with that fashion of structuralism in France. This is how psychoanalysis was read, structural psychoanalysis. You think you are a free subject? No. You are just a puppet, the big other, the symbolic order runs the game, and so on. But no, Lacan follows here Freud. Yes, you are overdetermined, but you cannot use this overdetermination or psychic necessity which makes you what you are, you cannot use it as an excuse. You know, like, to be vulgar, I'm sorry. I rape a child and then I say to the judges, sorry guys, what can I do? I was overdetermined by my unconscious complex. No. You are predestined by fate, but you are responsible even for that. You are much more radically uh, responsible. And I can't go into it now, I already did it in my class to develop how the same goes uh, also for, that's why it's a great thing, Kantian ethics. When Kant says, do Kant, then do Solst. You can do it because you must do it. Like, no excuse to not do your duty. If it's your duty, you have to do it. But Kant, this is not so often noticed, goes even a step further. He also implies that even doing your duty cannot be an excuse for doing your duty. Like, Chris, I hate you, let me do Like, I have to do something, it's my duty which will hurt you. I don't have the right to tell you, sorry guy, but it's my duty, no. I don't have the right to externalize it. I'm not responsible only to do my duty. I have to fully subjectively assume also my duty in the sense of what is my duty. This is why, incidentally, I mentioned this briefly in my class, and now I will stop with plagiarizing myself. Don't worry, I will not <laughs> repeat my class. This is why I think that although I admire her, at some point in her otherwise wonderful uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, if I remember it correctly, Hannah Arendt was wrong. 
Well, he took seriously Eichmann's statement that he was just a good Kantian. He did his duty for him. Duty was embodied in Führer's orders. So, sorry, I was doing my duty. No, Kant, uh, sorry, not Kant, uh, 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 Eichmann did precisely the wrong thing. He was not a Kantian because he did something that Kant strictly prohibits. He used duty as an excuse. Sorry, I helped killing millions of Jews. What can I do? That's my duty. No, you cannot refer to your duty as some objective determination that you have just to follow. You are radically responsible for your, for your duty. Now I will complicate things. Now the end of self-plagiarizing. You will get some new stuff. This solution, this dialectical interconnection of necessity and freedom, where yes, there is necessity, but this necessity is in a deeper sense contingent. Like you do something in a contingent way, once you do it, it retroactively becomes your fate. This solution works only on one condition. The subject, believer, agent, is absolutely constrained by the horizon of his, her, its finite subjectivity. What Protestantism prohibits is the very thought that a as a believer, I can, as it were, took a position outside, above myself, and look upon myself as a small particle in the vast reality. Here, since I already mentioned Mao Zedong, I would like to criticize him a little bit at the philosophical level, and incidentally, because of some of my lines like this, Alain Badiou is even now mad at me, <laughs> you know. Uh, Mao Zedong, I think, was wrong when he deployed his Olympic vision, reducing human experience to a tiny, unimportant, cosmic detail. You know, in his famous statement where he say we don't fear atomic war and so on, okay, with that, I, in principle, agree. But Mao went on and said this, a quote from Mao Zedong. The United States cannot annihilate the Chinese nation with its small stack of atom bombs. Even if the US atom bombs were so powerful that when dropped on China, they would make a hole right through the Earth or even blew the Earth up, that would hardly mean anything to the universe as a whole, though it might be a major event for the solar system, and so on. You know, it's kind of a weird excuse. Okay, Americans can destroy us, but what does it mean from the standpoint of the universe or whatever? Uh, I think that uh, uh, this argument, Mao's, only works if, in a pseudo-Kantian way, we presuppose like some, like, the problem is, where is Mao speaking from? From what subjective position when he states this? He acts as if he speaks from a totally external, purely divine position where you see objectively reality with inhuman eyes, and then you can say, okay, our Earth is blown apart, fuck it, a tiny blimp in some small planet, who cares? Uh, but uh, here, I don't have time to develop it, but this is a beautiful theological topic. Uh, intelligent Protestantism have a wonderful 
vision, where it's again that link between contingency and necessity. On the one hand, yes, we are a tiny piece of shit in a vast universe. Uh, Protestantism is not uh, ethnocentric, which is why Protestantism, insofar as it stands for modernity, was precisely the religious background of modern science, which precisely introduced the objective view of reality. You know that before Protestantism, the medieval world was Earth in the center, although we humans were not the center of the universe, it was uh, God, but nonetheless, uh, we were the highest point of the created universe, everything turned around us, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, what Protestantism unites, I don't have time to develop it now, just to give an idea, is I think something wonderful. It's at the same time this extremely brutal view. From an inhuman gaze, we are nothing. A tiny species on Earth, it doesn't matter. But nonetheless, since we cannot ever really assume that view, external view, in our ethical practice, we have to act as if whenever, and Kant, Kant puts it this very nicely, although objective science is telling us that, fuck it, we are again one tiny piece of dust in the universe, nonetheless, in a big ethical struggle, it's not just our fate that is decided, it, as it were, Kant put it so nicely, the entire universe was created as a background for that struggle of ours. You know, I love this unity of extreme ethnocentrism. The world was created so that we can fight this battle. And this radical, radically external view. Because uh, this is, in a way, when you witness a big change, revolution, or whatever, even with Holocaust, I think the intelligent argument, even Habermas made it, who tries to be a rationalist. But Habermas, I just don't agree with him, made once a nice point, where he says that with Holocaust, and I would add nonetheless some other events, like what happened in Congo, other horrible things, and so on, something so horrible happens that you, in a way, diminish its horror when you reduce it to a simple human event. Something went wrong in class struggle, whatever. It's horrible to say Holocaust was just a subchapter in class struggle and effect and so on. Something that Habermas said very intelligently that theological dimension means here just a way, a specific way, to signal that something so horrible happened that it doesn't fit our universe. We cannot, I'll put it this way, we cannot simply renormalize it as just another historical event. That's why, isn't this the title, you may correct me, maybe you know it more, of one of the books of, on Holocaust, The Black Sun, The Sun Itself Turned Out. You know, like, as some people say nicely, when something like Holocaust happened, it's a shame that the world continued to exist. If there were to be an elementary ethics in the world, out of shame, the world should have fallen apart. So that's, and now comes, come, I thank you for your patience, maybe my first more interesting aspect. It's part of this 
That's the paradox of Protestantism, radically anthropocentric, but at the same time, let's look at ourselves with inhuman eyes. Here, I think, but I'm reading them. By them, I mean assemblage theory, new materialism, object-oriented ontology. They can be combined with my position, because what's the true, let's call it naively, shattering ethical greatness, although I read it in a different way that it's usually read off. I will focus here on so-called new materialism, Jane Bennett. This idea that we should look at our life in the middle of nature as an interaction of agents. She calls them, I think, following uh, Latour, actants. And they interact, and we should look at it through an inhuman gaze, to see this as a process of interaction, even living interaction, where we are, we are just one of the elements. In her book, I think, Vibrant Matter, Jane Bennett provides a beautiful description of a trash site. She said, we think trash site, just nothing. Piece of shit there, things rotting. But she says, what if we look at it with an imagined inhuman eye? as a living process. We have a complex interaction of rotting trash, worms, insects, abandoned machines, chemical poisons, and each place, each element, actant, plays its own, never purely passive role. That's, I think, so-called new materialism or object-oriented ontology at its, at its most radical, to provide this type of uh, inhuman view. And again, I think there is an authentic theoretical and ethico-political insight in such an approach. Uh, 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 agency thereby becomes a social phenomenon, but the limits of sociality are expanded to include all material bodies participating in the relevant assemblage. Say, an ecological public is a group of bodies some humans, most of them not. And they are subjected to harm defined as a diminished capacity for action. Of course, the ethical implication is that we have to acknowledge the entanglement within a larger assemblage. Like we are not, nature doesn't serve us. We are just one among the agents on the earth. Here comes my first modest disagreement. I think, unknowingly, this argument of her description also remains radically anthropocentric. You know in what sense? The more it tries to be objective at the level of content, the more it privileges us, human species, as the only species which has access, <coughs> access to this universality. That's my problem with those so-called deep ecologists who claim animals, even a, 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 a Scandinavian friend of mine wrote a book where he claims even, even beautiful canyons, pieces of nature, should be treated as subject agents with human rights. Like, there is a beautiful organic totality in 
he gives a beautiful example of wonderful rock formation in Iceland, and he says, not only is it popular to say now, animals should have their rights, not just human rights, trees should have their rights, even rivers should have their rights. Yeah, but you know what's the catch? They don't know it. We automatically, when we want to act as deep ecologists, is the most arrogant anthropocentric position that you can imagine. Because you automatically assume that we, yes, we apparently humiliate ourselves, but we humans are the only agents who know, who have access to this universal dimension. I mean, uh, trees don't know about their rights. When a river is ruining the trees, it doesn't know that it is infringing upon, upon others' rights. All, you know, it's the same falsity as the one, I think, of a certain type of multiculturalism, where we claim, but we don't, are not the only ones who have the right, also other cultures have the right, but the more we humiliate ourselves, oh, we Western civilization, we are just one among them, the more we act as the only one who has the access to the universal dimension and can say what the rights of the others are. Like, I felt this quite often in debates in the United States. It's typical, arrogant, politically correct attitude that, and once I witnessed it, a white liberal guy, of course, they're always white, <laughs> defended black rights. That's perfect. I'm radically for them. But the problems were what that some black guys then didn't agree with him. And basically he started to shout at him, like, you don't know what are your rights, I will tell you, you know. That's the hidden arrogance which, and I think it's the same problem with those who sympathize with refugees and so on and so on. It's that I, once I, that's why I find suspicious this eternal self-humiliation of Europeans I called it a reversed white man's burden. You know, white man's burden is an old English expression, colonialist, for we white people are tasked by nature, God, whomever. Our burden is to lead other nations to civilized life, whatever. Now we have the opposite version of white man's burden, which is, I think, also a refined racism. Whenever something happened, it's in third world country, slaughter like Rwanda, it has to be an effect of colonialism. And I have an African friend from Nigeria who got the point and exploded. He said, you are such racist, you Europeans. You don't even allow us to be genuinely evil. You treat us as such innocent children that you know, whenever we do something wrong, it must be your guilt. This is the new version of white man's burden. Let's look around. There is a slaughter in Kampuchea. Oh, it must be an effect of colonialism. There is a, I mean, uh, okay, let's go on. Now things will get even much uh, uh, nastier. Uh, I hear John, Jane Bennett, if she were to be here, would have exploded. My ultimate example of assemblage would be, not as a cheap provocation, not, please don't misunderstand me, to read assemblage, to read assemblage theory as proto-fascist, quite the opposite, that I even tempted, but I'm afraid I would be even more attacked than I am, to write a, a short text on describing Auschwitz as an assemblage. 
Let's forget about human suffering. Let's look Auschwitz as a collaboration between humans, victims, worms, uh, fire there, and so on. A kind of objective process of material, uh, project, objective process of material interaction. And we can say not only the Nazis were agents, inmates were the agents, worms who ate the corpses if there were some, if they were not properly burned, were agents, and so on and so on. And we can do it. But now another philosophical point. I'm so sad I don't have time to develop it. Uh, what we get here, and now I will turn to Gilles Deleuze, towards whom I'm critical, but he's a genius, has ingenious insights. Deleuze said that his thinking tries to construct, a quote from Deleuze, a perception of reality as it was before or after man, humanity. A perception released from its human coordinates. He says we should view re reality as, quote, iridescent chaos of a world before man. Now, I claim this doesn't mean cosmological speculation, how did Big Bang look? It means that take a phenomenon like Auschwitz and you look at it from outside of human concerns. Of course, it's an Let's not misunderstand me. It's an utterly obscene vision. Because in some sense, you cannot do it. And here I come to my next point. I will be very brief. I really don't want to spend too much time. Uh, I think that, uh, I think that uh, here Deleuze introduces, and he does it. Some, at some point, he explicitly uses the terms. The Kantian distinction between for us, phenomenal reality and in itself, in the sense of nomenal, independent of us, not in this naive sense that uh, in itself is reality out there the way it really is outside our view, but in itself as, I will put it like this, an impossible phenomenon. The problem with the vision of Auschwitz that I gave to you it's not that, it's, you cannot claim, it's bluffing, that it's the way Auschwitz really was. In, no, it's still our view, but it's impossible view. It's too traumatic. As ethical human being, we cannot afford to look at reality in that way, where inmates are, the, the, the burned people there are just reduced to one among the actants together with worms and uh, whatever. Uh, so my point is this one that uh, what, uh, what uh, I, here Claude Lanzmann, with whom I often don't agree, I think to shock you that he's uh, Shoah. I find it very suspicious ethically. But at some point he was right. He wrote somewhere that uh, if he were to discover, let's say that some Nazi sadist did it, if he were to discover reels, I mean, movie, cinema, with direct shooting of the most brutal moments of Auschwitz. You see the bodies being gassed and then how in panic mother climbs upon her child to be a little bit higher, to be gassed. You know, the most brutal moments. He said, I would burn it immediately. And he is right. You see too much there. But you see the point. 
it's not that you see objective reality the way it see. You see a, a phenomenon, it's still a phenomenon, but a phenomenon which cannot be integrated into our reality. Okay, that's philosophy. Now I come to the final point, which may be problematic to some of you. At some point I got even, for showing this part in London, an old lady approached me and said, basically, she demanded from me a trigger warning. She said it was too brutal, you shouldn't have shown it to us. But I don't believe in this logic of trigger warning, you know. I think that academia is not a safe place when you, where you escape harsh life. Academia, on the contrary, should confront you with brutality. You know. Okay, so let's go on. In this messy world where everything is on us as ethical subjects, but at the same time, at the same, you see the paradox I'm saying. Look, for example, at slavery in the United States. You can provide an objective history. It was a collaboration of black stripes in Africa who were selling the slave, blah, blah. You do a an objective history, you can do it, but it's an utter obscenity. To do it from this neutral way, objectivity becomes an utter obscenity. It's an obscenity to report on it in an objective way. So again, if we try to bring together the two aspects, this ruthless objectivity and at the same time utter ethical engagement, what kind of ethics do we get? Here comes now my final example. One of the good aspects of globalization, I think, I really love it, is, I'm not against globalization, you know what? Because it's genuinely multicultural. By this I mean a simple thing, not multicultural in this uh, 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 usual left liberal sense, but in the sense that it's not only American culture and maybe French, English, also smaller nations get their chance. Do you remember how years ago there was a period of South Korean Taiwanese movies, there was a period even of, of, of Romanian movies, they are very good, wonderful sense of irony and so on. Never forget that this is also a, a good effect of globalization. It's not simply we will all eat, all eat hamburgers and watch uh, Hollywood blockbusters. If anything, my prediction is that one possible result of globalization will be that Hollywood will start losing. I mean, who still wants to watch their stupid, these blockbusters where they even cannot produce new formulas and all they can do is endless remakes of old movies and then combining them. No, now you have Batman with Superman and so on. It's despair. So what I'm to say is that I like to read the good detective novels and they are, we have now a new wave and that's what I like, I discovered. It's no longer those, a couple of privileged sites, you know, like for classical Houdanit England, for hard-boiled novels, LA area or United States, maybe a little bit of France and so on. Now they can happen detective novels literally everywhere at any time. Do you know that you already have novels which take place in ancient Egypt? A priest who is a detective at some stupid pharaoh's court. You have detective novels, Stephen Saylor writes them, which happen in ancient Rome. An acquaintance of Julius Caesar 
does the work. You have one series on Alexander the Great and so on and so on anywhere. Medieval, Umberto Eco started the fashion, medieval. You have them now which take place in Tibet, in Russia, and my favorite are those who take, which take place in extreme circumstances. Like, uh, you have now a whole subspecies of detective novels which take place in two of what, at least in Europe, we perceive as extreme moments, the last years of war in Germany and the harshest Stalinism. Like now, yesterday, I finished a novel called uh, Jim McDermott, Penemünde, where von Braun built rockets, uh, Deceptions, where there is a murder in 44, one of the engineers is shot in Penemünde. And I love, or you have Stalinist one, 35, a body is discovered in the middle of Moscow. An honest policeman tries to resolve the crisis, but the victim is a foreigner, KGB intervenes, whole mess, and okay, not to get lost, along these lines, okay, I will tell you a dream, because nobody will want to do it, I don't care if you know it. My simple dream is to do a novel, but honest one, not cynical, which takes place in Auschwitz. Like inmates and one is found strangled, and they are all on the edge of dying, but one of them tries to resolve it as a murder case. And then I want to do a paradoxically upbeat, tragic ending. He solves the crime, but then they all go in a well-known uh, to a well-known place with a big burning machine and so on. So uh, along these lines, I love the new. This is old story. Uh, yesterday's news: Sweden, even even Island, Norway, Joe Nesbo. My favorite are now thrillers come from Denmark. Not only novels, but also TV series, The Killing, and a series of novels which were made into films, a trilogy. Uh, I want to show you a short clip from one of them. The original title is Flaschenpost, Message in a Bottle. And in English, I don't know why, but it's a very good change of title. It was changed into a conspiracy of fate. Incidentally, I would love to write a text on the logic of, you know that now they no longer do it, but in the 50s and 60s, even later in some countries, they were always, when they dubbed a movie for another country, they were changing the titles all the time. For example, it's interesting, Hitchcock's North by Northwest. In Germany, it was quite logically. There, <coughs> Unsichtbare Dritte, the invisible third, and so on. My third example, sorry, I cannot abstain for, from playing bad taste uh, racist jokes. You know that for Brazilians, I spoke with you, Portuguese are stupid. The idea is all the intelligent guy from Portugal went to Brazil. Idiots remained there. So you know the story, I will not lose time, of Hitchcock's Psycho. The joke in Brazil is that Psycho title was changed in Portugal into the son who was his own mother, to make it understandable for the, So along, along these lines, this time it works. The title is A Conspiracy of Faith. A Danish mar from 2016, again, a call to illegal activity, you can immediately download it from uh, Pirate Bay or whatever. Uh, 
I will not bore you with the story, but just I will show you, just a minute, please, uh, 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 four or five minutes clip. It's the story of an honest policeman who is a, described as a terminally, terminally depressive guy, always in despair, of course, totally atheist, and uh, children are disappearing. They are killed in a strange, sadistic way, and at the end, he, the detective, locates the murderer, who is really a kind of ideal Parsifal, Aryan guy with blue long hair, a pathological murderer who thinks he is an instrument of devil, devil's son. And his task is, he says, to destroy the faith of the parents. It's not just to torture children, but he does this so that in presence of parents, or so that parents are away of it. So he says his main task is not just to torture and kill people, but to do it in such a way that it destroys their faith. And then, some, uh, an ethically quite shattering scene occurs. I find it beautiful. Don't be too alarmed. Ah, if some of you trigger counter-warning, are to be too shocked when a child is really drowned, killed. It's not. At the end of the film, he survived. He was just unconscious, so that you will not be too... No, because some people at some talk, when I show this, protested. How can you show this, and so on, and so on. Don't be... Okay, let's show... Now, I think I described it enough. <laughs> Stop. I think even the movie now loses its spirit because it's nonetheless as if after this stance, you know, God intervenes from the outside. But nonetheless, my point is a very simple one. From my Christian atheist standpoint, no, the murderer is wrong. God was there two times when he, the detective, offered himself, take me, take me, and when the girl didn't want to stab the guy. So this is the, my crazy position. I will try to be short, not to go too much on now. Buy my next book where you will have all the chapter <laughs> on this. No? Uh, it's called Incontinence of the Void to Appear, MIT Press in October. No, that, that, uh, this is what I mean by Christian atheism. You know, uh, Christ as a figure is not an active redeemer. It's just this impassive gaze which gives you the readiness to do it without any guarantee in faith. I don't read this in this cheap way. The guy, the detective, thinks he's an atheist, but really he's the deepest believer. No, he is. The murderer is right, the deepest believer. You know, when the murderer tells him, I never met a guy with such a faith as you. But precisely because he needs no guarantee whatsoever in some higher force. He just has to do it in a totally hopeless situation. It's not that he wants to gain his place in heaven. That's pure divine goodness. You see a situation, you have to do it. It's not because you account, oh, if I, say this, if I save this child, I will be forgiven to cheat on my wife, I will get a bed. It has nothing, it has, it has, uh, it has nothing to do with, nothing to do with that. So, uh, uh, I, okay, uh, uh, why then, now you can ask me a simple question. 
Why do I call this Christian atheism? Why don't I simply say it's a materialist ethics? Like this, pure goodness, no guarantee. Ah, here, of course I am a materialist, no misunderstanding here. But I, uh, my good friend, I really like him. Okay, not good friend, I boast, I exaggerate. I met him two times, we went along really well. You know, Rowan Williams, the leftist ex-archbishop of Canterbury. In his book on Dostoevsky, I don't like Dostoevsky, but I like his book, Williams is of Dostoevsky. He, among other things, I cannot restrain from briefly describing this to you, he provides the best reading that I can imagine of Dostoevsky's idiot. You know, the usual reading of idiot is he is too divine for this world, a saint. For Rowan Williams, it's a wonderful reading. And it's so deeply true if you know the story of Dostoevsky's idiot. He is not pure evil idiot, Prince Mishkin, but something much more refined. There are people, and I met them, they really exist, who are really sincerely, no doubt, innocent, good in themselves. But the way they act in their social environs is that it's a kind of a wrong goodness. They are absolutely sincerely good, but they cause catastrophe all around. You know, and for example, Prince Mishke, what does he cause? Nastasia Filipona gets murdered by that other guy, whatever. He causes catastrophe around himself. Okay, the same Rowan Williams provided a wonderful definition in his book on Dostoevsky on what really is the divine dimension at its most elementary. And he, Rowan Williams, makes a reference to four British Catholic novelists, O'Connor, Percy, Spark, and Ellis, and this is what he says about them, a short quote. All four create a world in which the secular majority account of what is going on is relativized. But there is no simple alternative that anyone can step into by a single decision or even a series of decisions in the sense of this secular reality is shitty and there must be a higher order. The religious dimension of these fictions lies in the insistent sense of incongruity, unmistakable even if no one within the fiction can say what we should be congruent with. So it's just that our world is out of join inconsistent, lacking something, but it's literally negative theology. Not negative theology in the usual sense. God is so much beyond that we cannot uh, uh, describe it properly. No, it's simply God is just this absence. The empty place comes before what we fill it in through our images of God. The basic divine dimension is this void. Just this void. In the sense of our reality is not, something is terribly wrong with this reality. And I think not only we can think with, we can think this in a materialist way, but the only proper way is to think it in a materialist way. And here things get complicated. Here we should reject, you know, one of the most famous formula of Marx, that religion is the opium of the people. 
first be careful, Marx does not say for the people. This would be way too vulgar for Marx. It's not that, as in a certain naive form of enlightenment, some evil priests are fabricating religion the way drug dealers like from Colombia, <laughs> sorry, my bad, I'm so sorry, are fabricating, no, it's of the people. But you know what's my, my main argument against this formula today? Yes, we have religion which works as the opium of the people. Of course, the terrorist, fundamentalist religion, but never forget, not just in Muslim countries. I'm here a radical pessimist. You know that FBI has under observation in the United States two million Christian fundamentalists suspected of being potentially terrorists. I'm sorry to tell you, that's basically the same percentage as among Arabs, you know. So the question should not be just to be Islamophobic, it should be what is it in the dialectic of modern global capitalism that pushes people towards fundamentalism. But okay, this is, or this is kind of also maybe a version today of the opium, uh, religion as the opium of the people. But there are at least two others, and I think Adorno already says this somewhere. We have two other opiums of the people. You will guess, I hope, which are they. Opium and people. For <laughs> populists, their opium is people themselves. You know this fantasmatic image, people, and so on. Le Marine Le Pen's opium are the people, and so on, no? The true French people threatened by... And the other uh, opium of the people is opium. For many intellectuals, opium is drugs. It's opium itself, you know. So the way to get out of it, I am for a religious dimension, but in this purely abstract way, and I don't have time to do it, a wonderful reading can be given in this sense to link since these guys are Danish people, to link with the obvious person, with Kierkegaard, no? whose formulas of religion, when he says God is not something we relate to, God is relating itself. And all those formulas who, at least I think, come to the edge of a certain type of very paradoxical materialism. I don't want to bore you too much, and I hope you will not protest, again, against this politically correct madness, I've shown you too much. My God, if you, I, I, you know, also when I talk about rapes, people claim you shouldn't talk in such uh, plastic terms or whatever, you know, that it's shocking. Fuck you, it should be shocking, you know, because if you just abstractly describe it, then it doesn't really affect you. Then it's just, oh, it's like bureaucratic statistics, you know. No, you should be shocked by the horrors which go on. Thanks very much for your kind patience. And <laughs>